Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship Home Service. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturner. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. And now here's Pastor Keith Malcolmson from Limerick City Church in Ireland. Distinct feasts which are broken down over the period of a year in, in Israel, in ancient Israel's history of their year. Every single year, they had seven national feasts. But those seven feasts were broken down into three distinct different seasons of time throughout the year. There were three main feast times, and yet there were seven distinct feasts. This is a bit like the three primary colors in the rainbow. We know the rainbow has seven colors in it, and yet there's three primary colors. But when those three primary colors come together, you find you've got seven distinct colors that come out of it. And so it is with the seven feasts of Israel. There are seven feasts, and yet there are three primary or three major feasts. And I want to deal with this here this morning. First of all, you have Passover. Second of all, you have Pentecost. And third of all, you have Tabernacles. With Passover, there are three uh, feasts come together at the season of Passover. We call it Passover. And yet, Passover is the first of the three feasts. And that takes place in the first month of Israel's calendar. Then we come to the second season and there's only one distinct feast that takes place there and it's called Pentecost. Then we come to the third uh, season of feasts and that's in the seventh month of Israel's year. And it, it is called Tabernacles and yet there are three distinct a feast that happened. So three at the beginning with Passover, one at Pentecost, and three again at Tabernacles. This, these are called the feasts of the Lord or the feasts of Jehovah. Do you realize when we look at Leviticus 23, each one of these seven feasts, they are symbolic. They actually have hidden within them great meaning remarkable teaching, but you need the New Testament to unlock it and to come to an understanding of it. Each feast is a symbol, a picture, a type, and a prophecy. As we begin to look at them here, you're going to see that each of these feasts was a prophecy of something that was going to happen in the history of the church. Each one of these feasts are historic events. They happen in real time. They have a real history or a future prophetic history that is yet to happen. We know already that four of these feasts are fulfilled. They have come and gone. They happen in history. They were real events that happened. And each of them from Leviticus 23, four of these feasts have literally been fulfilled already. And yet there's three that are yet to come in the future. Each of these feasts, the word uh, feasts there, we think of a meal and eating and having lots of food on the table. But that isn't what the word feast means here. 
The word feasts actually in the Hebrew, it means appointed days or to gather together at a set time. We know that in Leviticus 23, it talks about coming together in a holy convocation. Mr. Strong, that great expert in ancient languages, he said that this term feasts actually means an appointed place, an appointed time, and an appointed meeting. And since that's what we are in the church, that embodies everything we do as we gather together. I'm here this morning by the appointment of God. I'm here this morning in the will of God. I'm here to gather for the divine purpose of my God in heaven. You see, we begin in the New Testament to see the fulfilling God's plan to fulfill all seven feasts within his church, the body of Christ. When we go to the four gospels, we find Passover fulfilled in the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. When we move to um, the book of Acts, we find Pentecost beginning, and it will continue all through church history. Then when we reach Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, we find in Revelation chapter 20, we find tabernacles being fulfilled and coming to pass in actual history, although it's yet future, and it's only a prophecy to us at the minute, it will be fulfilled to the church, to the body of Christ. And so from the Gospels to the book of Revelation, all seven feasts are fulfilled in Christ to the church upon the earth in reality and power. Saints, I hope you're excited this morning. We do have a message here on this Pentecost Sunday about the reality of God's plan to fulfill his purpose. You see there, this all demonstrates that God doesn't work sporadically. It isn't per chance but it demonstrates there is a process throughout all of church history. There is an order in the workings and the dealings of God. And there is a final goal that we, the church, have yet to reach. Since it isn't over yet. It isn't over yet. We are heading for another three feasts in the future. It says in Leviticus 23 and verse 4, Ye shall proclaim these feasts in their seasons. So each feast has a specific season. And we are literally walking today in the Feast of Pentecost. This is the era of Pentecost being fulfilled. It hasn't been totally fulfilled as yet. It is in the process. And I believe we're coming to the very climax and the end of that season when we're going to move to another feast very soon. There is an appointed time, an appointed place, an appointed people, and there sure is an appointed sacrifice for us to offer unto the Lord in this season. In verse 2 of Leviticus, it talks about the feast of the Lord. It also goes on to say, my feasts. In other words, these seven feasts don't belong to man. They don't just belong to Israel. They weren't created by Moses. They weren't thought up in the mind of man. These are the feasts of the Lord. And they belong very specifically 
to the Lord himself. He says, they are my feast. Passover is mine. Pentecost is mine. Tabernacles is mine. And yet, what a terrible disaster when man takes these feasts and begins to change them and begins to rewrite them and begins to bring his mind and his voice and his will to bear. Saints, do not touch the ark of God. Don't change the message of blood redemption. Don't begin to play games with the gifts of God. Leave Pentecost as the feast of God. Leave Passover as the feast of God. Listen to me. It says in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 14, Isaiah speaking to Israel, when they play games with the feast of God, listen to what he says. Your appointed feasts. In other words, they're not the Lord's feasts anymore. He says, you have taken them and you've changed them and you've made them man-centered. And you know what? They're your feasts. They're not the feasts of the Lord anymore. They went through the ritual, but God was not there. Or in Lamentation chapter 2 and verse 6, it says that God himself has destroyed the places of the assembly. The Lord has caused the solemn feast and the Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. You want to know why Australia is in a mess, and Ireland, and America, and Britain, and the church of our generation. Do you know what? Man made these feasts his own and changed them. And according to Lamentation 2, do you know what the Lord has done? He has destroyed the assemblies across the land, the gathering places, and he's made the people to forget the meaning of these seven feasts that he gave to Israel. We see this also over in the New Testament in John chapter 5. Jesus Christ speaking to the people in Jerusalem, and he called these feasts the Feast of the Jews. No longer the Feast of the Lord, its proper name. But now it's your feast, the feast of the Jews. The Jews have taken it and done something else with it. Well, saints of God, we're only warming up here. We've got another seven hours to go here with me. I don't want to scare you. I just want to get into the word of God this morning. Here's my message. I've got three very clear points for you in this message from Passover to Pentecost. I can't cover everything this morning, but I I believe this is the word of the Lord to you. From Passover to Pentecost is a vital journey, and you've got to know the pathway, or you'll lose the meaning of these feasts. Here's my first point here this morning. Number one, no Passover no Pentecost. Let me say that again. No Passover, no Pentecost. If you lose the meaning of Passover, if you change its emphasis, if you set aside the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, if you lose its power and its reality, if you lose the the reality of the individual washing in the blood of Jesus Christ, of individual members of the body, 
you will have no understanding of Pentecost. As soon as men begin to change the gospel, as soon as they begin to lessen the seriousness of sin, as soon as they lose the revelation of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no Pentecost. And that's where the church of our generation has gone, long, gone wrong. They've set aside Passover and they say, we're going to emphasize Pentecost. I want to tell you here this morning, no Passover, no Pentecost. But if we come back to Passover and all of its meaning and all of its depth and all of its power, we will have another Pentecost again. Why is there no Pentecost in this hour? Why are there no great revivals? It's because most of the church has lost Passover. And since I'm saying this, believe him with all my heart that you as a church have remained faithful to Passover individually as preachers of the word of God. And you know what I'd say? Keep preaching the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is the way to Pentecost. There is no other way. In this feast of Passover, there were, three pa there, there were three feasts connected together. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And these three feasts were commonly called Passover in fullness. Let me just say a few words here about Passover, the feast of Passover, the first feast in the first month. Let me explain it here. And the best explanation of Passover is found in Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to consider, I know we know this so very well, Exodus 12, where we read about the lamb being slain and the blood put upon the lentils. We know it all so well. But let me point a few things out here, because I'm telling you, the preachers, the prophets, the apostles, the great movements, the assemblies of God, all the great uh, classical Pentecostal movements of our generation, they have lost the meaning of Passover. You know what most of them say? Sure, I know that. No, you don't. We need an old-fashioned washing in the blood of the Lamb. We need an old-fashioned encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ one more time. In Exodus chapter 12, and this is a shocking statement if you haven't heard it before, there is only one singular Lamb that's mentioned in Exodus chapter 12. Let me prove it to you here. In Exodus 12 verse 3, it says, they shall take to them every man, every single individual man, a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now in Israel, when they're in Egypt, in captivity, on that night when they're going to celebrate the first Passover, the first shedding of the blood of a lamb to deliver them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of captivity. There had to be two million people at least in that nation amongst Israel that were going to partake of that first Passover. Do you realize that if there were 10 people in each home with a lamb celebrating this first Passover, do you know what that means? There had to be at least 200,000 individual lambs slain that night. And yet Exodus 12 
doesn't talk about 200,000 lambs. It doesn't say that. Six times in this chapter, it mentions the lamb. Look again, verse 3, a lamb. Verse 4, the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. It's all singular, and I don't believe that's an accident because it was prophesying about the singular lamb of God for every home, for the entire nation, for every man, every woman, every individual. Saints, there is only one lamb of God. You can't take Jesus and change him. We're in a generation, they preach many lambs, but there's no more wrath of the lamb talked about in the church of our day. They don't believe in the wrath of the lamb, but the wrath that the lamb is going to come with wrath again for those who reject the blood, those who do not turn from sin, those who do not find genuine repentance. You know what? The preachers of our generation lessen the wrath of the lamb. Then it's not the singular lamb of the word of God. This lamb of God is very peculiar, very specific. There are many Christs in this hour. There are other Christs in, invading the church. But make sure your Jesus is the bleeding lamb. Make sure he is the lamb of Calvary. Make sure he is the holy one of Israel spoken about in scripture. And in Exodus 12, this little lamb was chosen on the 10th day of the first month. He was separated out and he was kept within each home for four days being inspected, scrutinized to make sure he was without blemish. He was to be a male, one year old, and without any blemish. No bones were to be broken on, the, on that little lamb. <clears throat> we, we know later the fulfillment of Passover over into the New Testament. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, and listen this, on the 10th day. For four days, he is examined in the city of Jerusalem by the chief priests, by the Pharisees, by the Herodians, by the Sadducees, by Caiaphas the high priest, by Herod himself, and finally by Pilate. All of them over these days are scrutinizing the Lamb of God. And then on the 14th day, just like the Lamb in Exodus, on the 14th day, he was crucified to fulfill Passover. He was literally bringing about the historic fulfillment of the Feast of Passover. What a remarkable thing that it was fulfilled in detail. In verse 6, it says, The congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. The entire congregation, every single man and woman in the nation, every blood-bought saint is guilty of the death of the Messiah. You're guilty of his death. I'm guilty of his death. My sin put him on the tree. You know what it says? The entire congregation are to kill him in the evening. In verse 7, and they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the sides of the door and the upper posts of the house, wherein they shall eat it. You know, after sacrificing that lamb and shedding the blood, they gather in their individual homes and they begin to feast on the body of the lamb of God. What a precious testimony 
to us here this morning. Do you know when this was fulfilled and brought to pass in Jerusalem? Do you realize while Christ hung on that cross for three hours, suffering, bearing the sin of all of us, carrying away our sin, paying the debt that we should have paid as he hung and darkness descended. Do you realize for three hours down in that temple, they're killing lambs. For three hours, they're killing lambs in that temple. They are going through the ritual, the festival of Passover, but it's a man-made thing. It is ritualistic. It is dead. They've lost the meaning of it. But up on that hillside, the Lamb of God, the singular Lamb, is dying and bleeding and suffering for sinners. Since we're told that in Exodus 12, when you get in that home, feed upon the Lamb of God. Do you know what it says? Eat his head as well as his legs. That Lamb, eat it all. Don't leave anything. Eat its inwards. In other words, all those bits that are hidden inside the Lamb, those bits I, I wouldn't like to eat, and I'm sure you wouldn't like to eat. We're told, eat all the innards of that lamb. Eat its intestines. Eat its liver. Eat all of those parts. Some people don't like the innards of Christ. Eat the innards of Christ. Some people say, I want the head of the lamb. I like all that thought and teaching. I, I, I want all of the messages of his love, but I don't want to walk like Christ. Let him speak to me. Let him talk to me, but I don't want to walk the walk. I assure you, you're going to have to eat the legs. You're going to have to eat the head. You're going to have to eat the tongue. You're going to have to eat the inner saints. I'm just telling you what Passover is. Why am I emphasizing something that we all know so well? Why is it I'm just telling you and briefly here, about feasting on the Lamb of God when we know it so well. Why is it when I come to preach on Pentecost, I've got to spend so much time upon Passover? Let me explain why before we go to point two here. Pentecost has no name. Again, this might surprise you, but although in the New Testament, we read the name Pentecost three times, you won't find it in the Old Testament. You won't find it once. It's not there. The name Pentecost for this feast, you cannot find it. In other words, in Leviticus 23, it was a feast without a name. It wasn't called Pentecost, but it is going to get the name Pentecost when it's in right relationship with Passover. When we go to the Old Testament, it's called the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks or the first fruits. It had no name of its own, but it can only get that in light of the Passover being fulfilled. What does Pentecost mean? It means 50, or the 50th day after. From Passover to Pentecost was 50 days. In other words, you only get the name and the character of Pentecost when you measure it from Passover. If you don't start at Passover as a church, as a preacher, as an individual, you'll never discover the truth and the power of Pentecost. Let me point something else out here. It has no date of its own. There's an actual date in the calendar for Passover. 
but search the Bible. There is no specific date for pass uh, for Pentecost. You know why? You always measure it every single year. Every single year. If you're looking for Pentecost, you've always got to go back to Passover and begin to measure it and begin to count. Listen, it says in Leviticus 23 and verse 5, in the 14th day of the first month, at even is the Lord's Passover. It's got a date. We're actually told it was the beginning of months or they reset the entire calendar. Israel did as a nation. When Passover happened, everything before it was forgotten. The calendar starts anew. Now you begin to start counting time. It's the first month. It wasn't before you got born again. It wasn't before the blood. It was in the middle of your life. But as soon as you find the lamb, as soon as you find Christ and him crucified, it is the beginning of a new life. Now, saints, you can find Pentecost. You know where to start. You know the place. You know the time. You know what happened. You understand the meaning. You see, in the Bible, there's no date for Pentecost. And there never will be. And the church needs to realize this again. They go looking for Toronto. They go looking for blessings. They go looking for something. They don't return to Passover. You know, when you go to Passover, you'll expose the faults. When you get back to the cross, to the blood, to the meaning of sin, you'll expose these false Pentecost, all of this game of religion. When you have a real Passover, you know what a real Pentecost looks like. I, Saints, please learn this. And this is my first point. No Passover, no Pentecost. If there's no Lamb of God, there's no dove of the Holy Spirit. No shedding and pouring forth of the blood. There's no pouring forth of the Holy Spirit of God. In, in our day, they've lost Pentecost only because they lost the bleeding Lamb. When I see this teaching people to pray in tongues, teaching them to prophesy, teaching them to dance, pushing people over, I know. They lost the Lamb of God. They have no direction. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. And believe me, if you try to get to somewhere and you don't know where you're starting, where you're going to, how to find it, you will never get there. Second of all, my second point, the true meaning of Pentecost. The true meaning of Pentecost. When we look at Pentecost here, in Leviticus 23, we begin to find, and the details are laid out. If you read the chapter, you'll find it's carefully described how you find Pentecost from Passover, from the specific place and time and date of Passover. Listen, uh, listen to what it says. It actually says there, you are to count in verse 15, and ye shall count. Do you know what the true meaning of Pentecost? You've got to begin walking, moving, counting, measuring from Pentecost. Never go into any experience, any teaching that takes you far from Passover. Make sure you know where Passover always is. And it's carefully described about being 50 days from these three first feasts. 
50 days. And on that 50th day, you have the Feast of Pentecost. Now, we know in the Old Testament, the number 50 represents the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year was a Jubilee year. What does Jubilee mean? It means liberty in the nation of Israel. If you can just make it to that 50th year, it's going to be a good year. Last year might have been a bad year. The year before might have been a bad year. It may have been a bad decade. It may have been a bad life. But I want to tell you, there is a real Pentecostal experience. It's not fluff. It's not bubble. It's not sham. It's not make-believe. It's not imaginary. It's not emotion. It is very, very real. It is as real as Calvary. It is as real as the born-again experience. It is distinct. It is different. It is separate. It is something more. But I want to tell you, there, there is something that you are to experience beyond Passover, and it is called Pentecost. When we talk about Jubilee or, or the 50th year, we're speaking about liberty, freedom, and deliverance. Freedom from your own works. You know what happened in Israel on the 50th year? The slaves are all set free. If you're a Jew born and bred, if you have your birth certificate, but you become a slave, that 50th year, you go free and all of your family. All of your debts are cancelled. The house that you lost in mortgage gets given back onto you. Your family is reunited as a body again. It is a year of celebration and the cancellation of all debts. What a wonderful thing Pentecost is. If you ever experience Pentecost, so much can be restored to you. Saints, I want to tell you, in that little bottle of oil that that little widow had in her house, the prophet said, what do you have in your house? She said, nothing, nothing. All I have is this little bottle of oil. You know what the prophet of God said? That's your answer, little lady. That's your answer, little lady. You might be in debt. It all may seem woe and gloom and dark. Your husband may have died. Your child might be sick. The debt collector might be knocking on the door. You know what, little lady? You know what, young man? You know what, old brother? I assure you, your answer is in that little bit of oil. If you just discover the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he'll speak to you, he'll comfort you, he'll restore unto you what the devil has stolen. Pentecost is a real event. In Israel's history, we know that after celebrating Passover in Egypt in captivity and being delivered, 50 days later, they're at Mount Sinai with the glory and the power of God. God came down at Mount Sinai as the people were all gathered there. And do you know what? God said for the whole nation to come near unto him and be joined unto him in a covenant. That very day, Israel was birthed as an entire nation. That was their marriage day to God on high. That was God entering into a covenant with them. And he laid it out in his word. Do you realize in that Old Testament, you find inscribed the covenant God made with Israel. When you come over to the New Testament, you find inscribed there the covenant God made with the church. 
You see, in this celebration of Pentecost at Sinai, the first Pentecost were celebrated. When God enters into covenant with the nation and they become an actual people, this is what Pentecost is all about. Not just speaking in tongues. And I do believe in speaking in tongues. I believe in all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. People can ridicule it and, and the faults can blemish it. But I tell you, there are the real gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's for us today. And it's not fluff and bubble. But let me tell you, on Mount Sinai, at that first Pentecost, 50 days from Passover, when God came down, and married that nation. You know the story well. 3,000 people died. It was the terror of the Lord. It was the righteous judgment of the Lord. The fear of God fell upon the nation. But when we come to the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, where we read, 120 in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And as the Holy Spirit came down in power, and as the Lord came forth in tongues of fire, in a wind blowing through that room, do you know what happened? 3,000 were born again. What a reality, saints. This is a real thing. Can I ask you, have you individually? Yes, you may have found Passover. Yes, you've been washed in the blood. Yes, you've been cleansed and forgiven. Yes, you're born again. But can I ask you, have you made that 50-day journey? Have you gone in the right direction? Have you merely stayed at Passover? Or have you made this journey to Pentecost saying, I want to journey through all seven feasts. I want all the fullness of God in my life. I never want to stop until I see Jesus Christ face to face. When I see him, I shall be like him. What a day when we see the coming of the Lord in all of his glory and power once again. But since in Leviticus 23, we have something here. And this is what I want to emphasize here this morning is the offering given in Pentecost. And it's very rare that you hear this taught or preached amongst our churches in this day. And I believe we've lost the meaning of it. We stop at tongues, but Pentecost means an awful lot more. When you go to Leviticus 23, verse 15 to 22, you have the teaching on what the Feast of Pentecost meant. We know like with Passover, with all of the details, it was all symbolic and it was fulfilled at the cross. But also in Leviticus 23, we have teaching, our information, our symbolic things there that reveal to you the true meaning of Pentecost. And I want to give it to you here for these few moments. Let's look at the offering that was made at the Feast of Pentecost every single year in Israel's history. And then it happened on the, with the church in Acts chapter 2, and it has continued right down to our day, being repeated times without number. You see, the offering that they were to offer on the day of Pentecost was, came out of the wheat harvest. It was to be a new grain offering, or they called it a meal offering. Listen to what it says in verse 17. Ye shall bring out of your habitations, your homes, your houses, 
That's where it begins, saints. This is coming out of your house to gather as the people of God. Those that weren't in the upper room didn't experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Lots of people sit at home and you don't understand Pentecost. There's people have the God channel. God help them. They, they need a lot of mercy to watch that, that, that rubbish on there. Most of those, if you find a good preacher on there, you've searched a long time and you've searched very hard. But, but can I tell you, with these offerings, it begins in your home, but there's got to be a moving out of your home into the gathering of God's people to keep Pentecost together, together as the people of God. Bring out of your habitations, and listen this carefully, two wave loaves of two tenth deals. Now I'm going to explain this to you. This is what they were to bring out of their homes, each individual, not just the priests, not just the high priest. It was to be the individual in his own home who knew what Passover was. He was to enter into Pentecost by coming out of his own house, and he was to be holding two wave loaves of two tenth deals. What does that mean? What's that got to do with Pentecost? Let me show you here. First of all, notice with this offering, two loaves. There are two baked loaves. There's two loaves. Now, what does two always mean in the Bible? It means agreement together. Two in agreement. It means to be a witness or to have a testimony. Now, coming out of your house with two loaves, what did it mean? What did it symbolically represent to do with Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? I believe these two loaves represented the nation of Israel and the church brought out of the Gentile nations. Let me prove it to you. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus on the cross, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain or of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. What does the two loaves coming out of your home, gathering as the people of God, gathering in Jerusalem, going into the temple with two loaves? You know what it means? It was a prophecy. It was symbolic. It was looking forward, saying there's coming a day when Jew and Gentile are going to be formed into one body, into the bread of God, into the church of Jesus Christ. They are two distinct entities, and yet they're being formed into one body. They're two loops, two witnesses, two people, two nationalities, and yet in Jesus Christ at the cross, there's going to come forth one church. My friends, I want to tell you, that's why I'm all, I, I, I'm totally against all this back to your Jewish roots movement or the messianic movement. Now, there's a real thing and a false thing, and most of it's false. I knew a pastor in Wales once, a lady came to him, he was a good friend of mine. A lady came to him and said, Pastor, 
Someone told me you weren't Jewish. He said, I'm not. I'm not. He said, no, pastor, you are. You're a complete Christian, a full Christian, a true Christian. You're a Jewish Christian. He said, lady, I'm not. I'm a Gentile. I've got no Jewish blood in me. The lady left his church. She thought he was a real pastor with Jewish blood within him. You know all that? That's foolishness. Back to our Jewish roots. We need to go back and be like Israel. No, 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 no. Look at Romans chapter 13. Israel, one day in the future, as a nation, is going to go back to its Jesus roots. It is the church and the nation of Israel. We are in the tree and Jesus Christ is the roots. Never listen to that stuff about going back and finding your Jewish roots. I know there's a truth there. I know all the apostles were Jews. I understand all of that. But in the cross, the enmity was removed and we are one body. On the day of Pentecost, there was a fulfilling of the two loaves coming together amongst the people uh, of God in a very real way. Do you know in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls are born again. And almost all of them are Jews. It is a Jewish revival. It is a Jewish outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 10, it says, Jews and proselytes were among those 3,000. The Jews and the proselytes. Who were the proselytes? They were Gentile converts who had become Jews. So you did have some Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism, and there was a little taste, a little beginning of how the Gentiles were going to come in. Then we have 5,000. Then we have Pentecost come to Samaria. Now you've got a, almost a Mongoloid people. You've got a half-caste people amongst the Samarians. They're half Jewish and they're half Gentile. But you know what? God sent his Holy Spirit. You know why? It's going to be two loaves brought together in one body of Christ. Saints, I hate this unity. I hate it when they change the church into a disco. And the old folk are pushed out of the church. And it has to be like a teenager disco. That is disunity. And it's against Pentecost. It's an enemy of Pentecost. It is not the real thing. They can talk all about the revival if they want. There's no revival there. They lost the lamb, and now they've lost the dove of the Holy Spirit. Since Pentecost began as a Jewish revival, but it was only a partial fulfillment. Soon there were outpourings upon Gentile gatherings in Caesarea in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome, and finally, even in Philippi, right down to our own day and generation. It's even reached Limerick City at the outer boundaries of the Western, uh, of the Roman Empire. Here's little Ireland. Even Pentecost reached this island with the gospel. In 30 years, Patrick, that man of God, preached the gospel, and Ireland was changed from paganism to Christianity. There is a power in Pentecost. It is still in force. Saints, don't think God is finished yet. He hasn't finished. You can be baptized with the Holy Ghost and power. Have you experienced Pentecost? Let me go a bit further here. I think we said you're here for seven hours. 
seven feet so. Let's hang in there till the morning. I've got some of you worried. But in verse 17, in Leviticus 23 again, it says two tenth deals. Now, what does that mean? This two tenth deals is a measurement. It actually means two ephes or umars. In other words, you had one loaf and it weighed about the equivalent of four pints. Can you imagine coming out with these two loaves? Both of them weigh about four pints as far as their weight. Do you know what that means? These two loaves are solid. There is a weightiness in these two loaves that represent the coming together of the body of Christ. There is a weightiness in Pentecost. Show me the church that's experiencing Pentecost, and I'll show you a weightiness. I, you know, when I was younger, I was in a church. I, I was young, I was 15. And when I got to the door, from the door, 15 years old, all I wanted was preachers who spoke about the Lord, who, who exhorted me to follow Christ, like Pastor Werner here. What a, what a wonderful man, always exhorting, always able to exhort no matter what the season. But you know what? I reached the door of that church and I knew from the door to my seat, I would meet three elders or pastors that would tell me silly, carnal jokes. I'm talking about a Pentecostal church. It was a good church, a conservative church, a moral church, a Bible preaching church. But I, as a 15-year-old, I said, man, how am I going to get past these jokes? I'll slip into the toilet. Maybe I'll miss two of them. I'm telling you about the loss of the weightiness of Pentecost, the reality, the substance, that we know it's two-tenth deals. They are weighty, but there's two of them. That represents a double portion. And we always think of Elijah and Elisha, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism in the Holy Ghost. That isn't foolishness or lightness. Since we need in our churches, again, a unity, doesn't matter the color or the culture or the language. Isn't it lovely this morning? It doesn't matter what your color is in this gathering. It doesn't matter if you're Irish or German or Australian. It doesn't matter where you're from or what nationality. Even the Czech Republic gets in here this morning. But praise God, it doesn't matter. It is one body of Christ. But there is a weightiness. There is a double portion. There is a coming upon of the Holy Ghost. I've never seen a man full of the Holy Ghost who act, acted the fool. Never seen it. Never seen it. There is a weightiness with those upon whom the power of the Holy Ghost come upon. Acts chapter 1. But ye shall receive power after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The power is with the coming upon of the Holy Ghost. There is a weight when the Holy Ghost comes down in the church. You can tell in the worship or the prayer meeting or the preaching or the gathering together or the evangelism. There is a weightiness. There is a weightiness where the Holy Spirit is not a burden unless it's the right burden. But there is a weightiness in this. Also in verse 17, it says that these two loaves are to be made of fine flour. Fine flour. It means something. You see, these two loaves begin as whole wheat. You can't eat whole wheat. It won't satisfy you. It won't be good for the stomach. 
But that's where the loaves begin. They begin with fine flour. But you know what? You've got to take the whole weight. And to make it fine flour, to make the loaves, and even with the local church, you have to start with that rough weight. You're going to have to go into the harvest fields. You're going to have to bring in that harvest. And then, do you know what? You want to take that weight, that whole weight, and you want to begin working on it to make it into fine flour, to make it into the one bread, the one body of Jesus Christ. What do you do to make it from whole weight to fine flour? How do you get your fine flour? You've got to grind it. You've got to crush it. Since I'm telling you, if we're to see Pentecost again in our churches and our homes and our families and our communities and our cities and our nations, if we're going to see it, we need fine flour to make the body that can hold this Pentecostal revival. What does this grinding and this crushing mean? It represents the trials and the troubles and the tests and the temptations and the sufferings that we go through. You know, all of that, even in a young believer, is to bring us to a place where we're fine flour to become a part of the body of Christ. Have you suffered? Have you quizzed why? Why me? Why this? Why now? I want to tell you, maybe God is looking for fine flour to make the body of Christ to have the loaves in the right place at the right time for God to pour out his Holy Spirit. You see, we, it takes suffering at times for that local body to become one bread. Do you listen to me for a second? It takes trials and troubles, a broken heart, sorrows, tragedy sometimes to mold us as the body of Christ. So easy for lightness and foolishness and distractions to come in. But let suffering come once again, and you'll have a real body of Christ. Saints, what is it like when we pray one another through the trials and the suffering? You know, over these couple of weeks, just with your pastor and sister Ella, just such beautiful times as we prayed together, and that unity, I just feel that joining of our hearts as we pray for one another and as we lift each other's burdens, and as we encourage each other, oh, there is a unity in the midst of that. Don't think that the sufferings are wasted. They're not. We are to be blended together as fine flour. There's got to be a grinding down that we can blend together to bring forth the body. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, which we done this morning, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Can I want to assure you that there is a loaf. The bread that we break, what is it? It's the body of Christ, the local church. Oh yes, it's Christ's body. It represents the bread we took this morning, represents his body broken for us. But never forget, it also means the unity of that body. We are the fine wheat. We have been ground down in the trials of life. Sometimes I thought I wouldn't make it through, but I'm still here in the body of Christ. I'm still praying. I'm still in the house of God being encouraged this morning. You know, after this fine flour is taken, it says there also it's to be baked. It's to be baked. You won't have a real church. Pastor Werner, Sister Ella, leadership, you won't have a real loaf without the bacon. <laughs> you might have 
a, a lot of fine wheat. It's good wheat. It's been ground down. But you've got to bake that bread. It's not bread until it's been baked. No, Lord, not more fire. Yes, more fire. You've been ground down. You, you've been broken down into a place of humility at his feet. But we've got to bake this bread, this local church and the body of Christ in this hour and this generation. We need to break the loaf. You can't eat it like that. You can't eat it until it is actually being baked because a change comes. It says in Hosea 7 and verse 8, the prophet speaks and he says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. You ever wondered what that meant? Ephraim is a cake not turned. It's only been baked on one side, but not on the other side. In other words, it's half-baked. You ever met a half-baked Christian? I won't say any more. I'm, I'm sure you have. A half-baked Christian is a creature unknown out there in this world of ours. It's a, an entire creature of its own self. A half-baked Christian. They say, I want revival. And then they're drinking in the pub. You're a half-baked Christian. You don't deserve the name at all. But notice in verse 17, it says it must be baked with leaven. This is shocking. Now listen to me carefully. I, I, I'm running out of time here, and I'm going to have to cut across the field, open the gate, run across the field, and finish here. I, I, I assure you, I could keep you on, on, until the sun rises in Ireland, and it's down at the minute. But, but I want you to hear this before I finish. You think that leaven is a bad thing in Scripture. It is. It is. Leaven usually represents sin. The old nature or false, some form of false doctrine. That's what leaven usually represents. That's what it actually means. You're to bake this loaf, this bread, with leaven in it. Do you realize in the previous feast, there's to be no leaven, no leaven at Passover. You're to get leaven out of that house. No leaven was tolerated or to be found in Passover or in the work of the cross, none whatsoever. But here we're told that you're actually to bake the bread and it comes with leaven in it. In other words, there is leaven. There's fine wheat purified by the dealings of God. Here you have spirit and flesh together. And I'm sorry to tell you, we, we are a mixed bag in the church. We are. Even the best of churches. Look at Corinth, a little leaven. There's things that had to sort out. Look at Galatia. Look, look at that little leaven coming in. Look at the problems in the New Testament churches. But it was the body of Christ, real churches. You know what? This church in Limerick has leaven, and we've got to deal with it. And I'm sure there's leaven that you found in the bacon of this. You know what that means? Leaven doesn't manifest until you bake the bread. <laughs> there's a lot in this, I can assure you. Until you apply the heat in the local church and begin to bake that bread, as soon as you begin to bake it, you find out the leaven that's there. Baking the bread, the loaf, to bring forth this for Pentecost, it's in the will of God. It's in the plan of God. But you know what? As soon as you start baking it, you're going to see anything that's false. Every false doctrine, every false characteristic, 
when the heat comes, when the fire begins to burn, I assure you, we, we've seen, uh, we got tired of seeing people walk in the front door. Praise God, this is my church. I've been looking for a real church. I've been looking for prayer meetings like this. I've been looking for a pastor like you. Oh, I'm here to stay. Well, most of us now, we begin looking at our watch. We'll go, will it be one meeting, two meetings, or three meetings, or maybe even three months? I've been amazed that in the atmosphere of Pentecost, where the word of God is preached, I assure you there is a bacon of that loaf. Oh, there's a bacon of that loaf. And that wheat is being forged together. But any leaven is going to be manifest in the midst of that bacon. Every early church after Pentecost, it wasn't long. Oh, it was all joy and singing. But very shortly, you're, you're going to find uh, 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 someone lying to the Holy Ghost in there. You're going to find someone sleeping around or going out for a beer or watching Benny Hen on television. Oh, you're going to find. But that heat begins to burn. Don't be shocked what you find. You know what? This is all Pentecost. Don't, don't be shocked at the condition you find or the thing. It might break your heart. But I want to show you it is Pentecost. But that loaf, it says in Leviticus 23. You know what it says about those two loaves with leaven? It says they're holy unto the Lord. They're separated. They belong to him. These are his loaves. And then it says there in verse 17, it talks about they are the first fruits unto the Lord. What is first fruits? It means the first, the best. It speaks of more to come. That this is only a beginning. In Acts 2, it was only a beginning. It wasn't a complete fulfillment. It was the beginning of what is still carrying on and happening in our very day. It says in verse 22 there, When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. You know what that sounds like? The book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. When you go there and read about Ruth and that remarkable story of that Gentile lady being brought into the house of God, and what's she doing? She's gleaning in the corners of the field, just like it says here with the Feast of Pentecost. Do you know the Jews, the Old Testament Jews, always read the book of Ruth at Pentecost, at the Feast of Pentecost, they always read Ruth. Why? Because it's about first fruits, about the first harvest, about the first revival, about God's plan amongst Gentiles and Jews together to bring forth two loaves in the house of God. It is so real what God wants to do in this generation. Saints, finally, let me finish here. It's a wave offering. These two loaves get taken into the house of God. You've got to come out of your house with the two loaves, but the priest takes them. And it says there in Leviticus, their loaves are for the priest. And that priest carries them into the house of God and he begins to wave them. And he begins to wave them <coughs> on the day of Pentecost. Do you realize down the road in the temple and the priest was holding the two loaves and he was waving them, going through the ritual, going through the ceremony. But I want to tell you, 
at the very same time Jesus Christ had entered in within the veil and he was standing before the Father and he was waving this beginning of harvest of Jew and Gentile, this bacon of the bread, this bringing forth of a church that is baptized of the Holy Ghost, that's given the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's beginning to evangelize and preach the gospel. Saints, I tell you, there is a real experience of Pentecost but you can only have it if you've experienced Passover. But saints, there's more. There's more than Pentecost. There's more. There's three more feasts. And as I finish here, listen to me very carefully. My third and last point. Give me one more minute. I'm not going to speak more, but one last minute. My third point. Pentecost always leads to tabernacles. The last season of feasts, made up of three feasts, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. The church has experienced Passover and its two accompanying feasts, and they've experienced Pentecost. But we, the church, all over the world, in this generation, no church has experienced the fulfillment of the last three feasts. We have four feasts. And we're walking in the reality of them and the power of them. But there's another three feasts which together are called tabernacles. Do you know what they represent? Let me briefly explain. They represent the last trump. It begins with trumpets. It begins with the blowing of trumpets in preparation for the parousia. For the catching away of the bride of Christ. For the rapture of the real church of Jesus Christ. The first resurrection. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The destruction of Antichrist. And the millennial reign of Christ. Seen in Revelation chapter 2. Where Jesus will reign upon the earth. Saints, that is our seventh and last feast. And I believe those in Melbourne and those in Limerick who have gone from Passover are going to enter into the blessing if we stay on this route filled with the Holy Spirit, with our eyes upon Jesus, always making sure we never leave Passover and we go forward in the power of Pentecost that when we get to tabernacles, we are going to see all our desires fulfilled. When we see Jesus, it will be worth it all. Saints, there is an end to this, but it's not yet. If you thought it finished with Pentecost, you're so mistaken. Just a little longer, and we're going to see Jesus Christ. I believe it's a time right now. Maybe we've already entered into the time when trumpets begins to blow. When we hear like Matthew 25, the wise and the foolish virgins all sleeping, and then they hear that midnight cry. I believe that's the beginning of trumpets. When we hear that midnight cry and the wise and the foolish suddenly awaken and the wise trim their lamps and they go out to meet the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And I believe trumpets probably begins with preachers rising up who know it's time. Jesus is coming. This is the last hour. Do you realize most of the Pentecostal church are utterly skeptical 
about what I've just said about these last three feasts. They put it in the butt in some future mystical place. I tell you, it's real. And I'm going to see his face very shortly. I'm going to see him. And in a twinkling of an eye, I'm going to be changed. I'll experience a bodily resurrection. And, and us older ones who are gathered here, we're going to shout hallelujah when I get a new body and look upon the face of my Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for this church. Will you bless them? Will you strengthen them? Will you encourage them? Lord God, I thank you, O oh God, for that baked loaf. I thank you for the preaching that you've ordained in this church. I thank you for their friendship and their prayers and the blessing of communion together. We are one bread not separated by distance, not separated by culture, not separated by language. But my God, because of Jesus and what he done on the cross, we have been made one people in Jesus Christ. And oh God, we do want Christ to hold up the two loaves, these two churches that are joined together in this gathering. And oh, that Christ would wave them at the throne of God. Oh yes, there's leaven. And we find leaven, and it needs purged out. But, oh God, thank you that we are the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you here this morning.